Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, you texted me this morning at probably like 7 a.m. your time to say you are already drunk. So what's going on? <laughs> it wasn't 7 a.m. It surely was, it was 9 a.m. or so. <laughs> I don't know exactly. There's a big time difference. I sometimes get it wrong. But anyway, you've been, you've been starting off right, huh? Uh, so... Today, we're recording for me at 1130, um, which creates the dilemma for me of whether I should be drinking beer during this this podcast, um, which I decided to compromise. I guess we'll get to beer in a second, but I'm going to be drinking something that I will argue is like drinking Bud Light Lime. <laughs> wow. Okay. You know what? Like, I, I know we normally do beer later, but now I'm curious, what, what the hell are you drinking? Um, I'm drinking... Uh, lime flavored sparkling water um, made by Clear American, which sounds a bit like Budweiser, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did So you put vodka in it or? <laughs> I guess no one would ever know. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just say you did. Just claim you're drinking straight <laughs> vodka. Who's going to, I mean, you know, maybe people will say like, you sound suspiciously lucid yeah people say that to me all the time (laughs) wow i expected you to sound dumber (laughs) surprising and articulate what's going on so i feel like there's something obvious that we should be discussing you all which is like what's life like in tuscaloosa right now yeah exactly how (laughs) how is yes that is that was what i've been burning to ask you how is everything in tuscaloosa it's pretty good um i would say that the main thing that's going on in tuscaloosa right now um, is that it, it seems to be like frat party season. Um, I'm not sure if it's frat party season or if it's just like outdoor frat party season. So when you like drive by the frat houses, they all have these like, it looks like a giant black garbage bag, like that creates like a, a barrier around their lawns, um, which I suppose is to like hide what's happening. Um, but they also have holes cut in them, which could be to prevent them from like blowing away, but also I think creates a sense of like mystery and intrigue. Like you can like peek in the hole. And, like did you did you peek in any holes? I have not yet. Oh, you have to and report back what you see. Okay, we'll do. I'm. Is this like a standard thing? I don't remember this about frat parties that they try to block off what they're doing from passersby. Yeah, it's not clear to me why the tarps are up. Actually, I I assume it's because they're they're maybe not allowed to drink on the lawns. And and so they, it's like, it's like a paper bag mechanism, you know, where everybody knows what's happening, but like nobody can see it. You're not supposed to flaunt it. Yeah. Uh Yeah. yeah. I guess. Uh, That makes sense. So you all, you look like you are still in recording from a closet, but it's a different closet right now. Is that That's, that's right. This is my (laughs) Barcelona closet. So I'm, I'm going to be in Barcelona for the next two months. Um, I got here a couple days ago. Uh, the the apartment that I rented, uh, I'm quite happy with, but it's big and echoey. There's like tile floors, uh, a lot of hard surfaces, not a lot of like wall drapery. I should really complain <laughs> about that. It should be like, you know, I expected more drapery. What's with the? What's this is with really the, not conducive to podcasts. The me. drapery deficit. Yeah. So I've I'm I'm now in the uh, guest bedroom, the kind of smallest bedroom. Uh, and I've hung up a bunch of shit, which uh, Alexa can see here in the attempt to make my audio a little less echoey. So I guess we will see how that goes. Very impressive. I think your setup in your Barcelona closet is probably better for our audio than my office at home. But Well, you know, you have a proud tradition of not giving a shit about how you sound, you know, and I respect <laughs> that. <laughs> yes, that's very true. Uh, yeah, so uh, for the next couple months, I'm going to be in Barcelona, where we're going to be recording still, but it will be at an inconveniently early time for Alexa. So depending on whether she's teaching, she may or may not drink. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. I mean, sad, but but fair. Just just to you know, um, just put it out there though. When Mickey was on sabbatical and we recorded at like 10 a.m. his time, he would totally drink. When he was on sabbatical, though. That's a good point. That's a Mickey, good point. Mickey has a proud tradition of not doing any work on sabbaticals, at least. Also, at least my advisor. Also, also when not on sabbatical. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That is a different story. We can't really hold you to that standard, can we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep. 
So um, I, in honor of Spain, I'm drinking a Spanish wine, uh, uh, Rioja. Uh, let me see. I'm going to grab the bottle so I can tell you what it is. It is uh, Pata Negra Rioja. It was $7.95 at the corner store. Wine here is like basically free. And it's good. It's amazing. So, yeah, I, I mean, when I think about how much food costs in Canada versus here, I just like want to cry. It's like basically free here. And it's like the really good stuff, right? Like cheese is really cheap and wine yeah. is my... Yeah, okay. like the the cheap wine is really good. The cheap cheese is really good. I went to like a discount grocery store and they had all these like fucking gourmet cheeses and sausages and things. It's incredible. <laughs> That's... I'm excited for you. You can have some really fancy charcuterie boards. I'm going to come back uh, needing uh, open heart surgery, no doubt, but it's going to have been totally worth it. <laughs> so, uh, Alexa, I, I'm i the one who suggested today's topic. Is that right? I think it is. Yeah. Um, but it seems connected to, I think, conversations that we've been having on the podcast. So it feels it feels pretty related. Um so yeah, so you suggested that we read um, this article by Liam Kofi Bright um, that was written in 2017. Um, the article is titled Du Bois' Democratic Defense of the Value-Free Ideal. Um, and so basically the article addresses uh, this question of whether um, scientists should let non-scientific or I guess like non-truth-focused values um, influence their science. Um, so should we allow, I guess, uh, potentially political values or moral values? Should we allow those things to um, interfere with our scientific research? Um, and so, yeah, this is this is William Kofi Bright's, I guess, analysis of Du Bois arguments and also some of the people who um, disagree with Du Bois. So people who have sort of provided counter arguments to that. Um, so yeah, where should we start? Should we, uh, well, I, I guess let's just catch us up, uh, on where we were with this, because I feel last time we got into it a little bit and I feel like I was making the value free ideal argument, uh -huh. although I wasn't smart enough to, you know, use the, the nice language for it like that in pretty strong terms. And you were a little more skeptical. Would you, would you say that's fair? Like about our starting positions? Yeah. So I, I do. That's, that's how I anticipate today's discussion. I feel like I'm going to be the anti-value-free ideal and you're going to be the pro-value-free um, ideal, uh, unless one of us, I guess, persuades the other. <laughs> you know what? Let's say it could happen. Um, so the definition of the value-free ideal, I think, it, useful to put that out there to start with. Um, and this is a, a quote from uh, Douglas uh, that, uh, that uh, Bright has in his piece, the value-free ideal for science may be understood as the belief that social, ethical, and political values should have no influence over the reasoning of scientists. So you have your ethical, political, moral commitments, but you're supposed to try to check those at the door when you're doing any kind of scientific reasoning. Um, and, you know, that if you take that seriously, that's a pretty big ask because it says basically you should uh, follow up on and disseminate a finding even if you th find it morally very objectionable, even if you personally think it's going to have socially objectionable effects. You shouldn't care about any of that. You should put it out there. So if I have some finding that I think is going to be quite likely to increase um, discrimination against some minority group, uh, the value-free ideal says I shouldn't care about that. I should publish it regardless, and it shouldn't have any effect on my scientific reasoning. Is that like a fair way to sum it up, you think? Yeah, I think that – so I think that's one of the implications that is would be really interesting for us to talk about is this idea that we shouldn't be um, censoring or selective about what we report um, based on social our social values or what we anticipate could be the social implications of the findings. Um and then I guess like another implication is that um, we shouldn't bring those into the choices that we make when it comes to designing our research or choosing what topics to to do research on. Um, so, yeah, our social goals should not dictate, I guess, what we do research on, although they talk a little bit about less about that in the article. I see that as sort of following from that um, principle. Yeah. So that's something that we can talk about um, this article 
talks mostly about drawing conclusions from data, and right. it doesn't really talk about choice of topic, uh, which you know, doing that in a value-free way seems quite difficult. Uh, but let's put that aside for the moment and just talk about uh, how it applies to to reasoning from data. And and it, 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 they do talk explicitly, or Bright talks explicitly about dissemination, about that being another aspect, like what what findings you choose to put out there. Um, right. So that's something that, according to the value-free ideal, shouldn't be affected by our kind of ethical standards or moral beliefs. One thing that I really enjoyed about this piece is like, first of all, I didn't know that Du Bois had written about this kind of philosophy of science stuff at all. Mm -hmm. um, I, I knew that he was a sociologist who had written about lots of stuff, but I, I didn't know that he had put his oar in about this. Um, and I certainly didn't know that he advocated for this, at least um, in his earlier life, for this very strong version of this value-free ideal. So I, I think um, this piece, first of all, lays that out really well. And then it also, it's just a nice introduction, I thought, to the different perspectives on this question and kind of delineate some of the arguments against the value-free ideal mm -hmm. that have been that have been put forward. Yeah. Okay, wait, I have a question for you before we get into, into those arguments. So um, I was curious how you came across this article. And I also relatedly was wondering um, if you know much about sort of who who is um, bringing up um, these kinds of arguments, especially like Du Bois specifically um, lately, is this like something you've come across in a few different um, contexts? Like, or yeah, how did you come across the article? Yeah, I wish I remembered exactly where it was on mm -hmm. Twitter somehow, uh, but I don't remember exactly where on Twitter. And it was after we had recorded the last episode and had kind of talked about this. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. this looks really relevant. Um, and I was sort of vaguely familiar with um, Liam Bright uh, and thought that he wrote interesting stuff. And so I thought it would be worth reading. But other than that, I have I really haven't seen this at all, around at all. I have n had no idea that Du Bois had advocated anything like this. Um, and really, it's not a position that I feel I see argued a lot. If anything, I see really more the opposite argued. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The idea that, you know, we need to bring activism into our science and work towards various social justice -y kind of goals and sort of deliberately infuse our political and moral beliefs into the research that we do. I feel like that's a very popular position right now. Um, I guess I would agree that that seems, at least to me, to be a popular implicit position. I didn't know that a lot of people were arguing for that explicitly. D do you find that as well? Or are you saying like people... Um, are acting as though that's their position. No, I see that like quite explicitly. So okay. people will describe themselves as activist researchers, for example. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you don't hang out with the right people on Twitter. You know, this is <laughs> yeah. one of the many things that you're missing. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, dominant, but it's definitely common. And you just don't see the counter uh, position explicitly advocated. I would bet lots of people kind of implicitly believe this, but I don't see a lot of loud and proud advocating for value-free science. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well. uh, why the asymmetry? Yeah. Like, why do you think that people aren't advocating for the value-free ideal? Um, or you sort of implied that like, maybe people think it, but they're not voicing it. Yeah. I think there's some social pressure not to. I think that you know, you don't want to get lumped in as a reactionary and it kind of makes you seem like you're against all of this stuff that, you know, maybe you're not, uh, right? So if you're like, yeah, I think all of this social justice stuff is great, but I don't think it should affect our science, then I think people uh -huh. are going to say, I don't think you really think it's great. In fact, right, I think right. you actually think it sucks, right? It's like conservative coded. Yeah, that's. I guess that's what I was wondering. Do you think that people are not expressing it because it's like associated it's like linked to a conservative position or people assume it's a conservative position. Yeah. Yeah. That's my guess. I mean, this stuff is so interesting. I, I was thinking about this earlier because it's like when you put something on Twitter, let's say, and you're just kind of like unprompted putting it out there. Mm -hmm. I think one question is why? And I think it's, it's almost kind of fair to say like, well, so the 
people who are like, I'm an activist researcher. I feel that's important. They're demonstrating their affiliation with a certain like set of beliefs or a group. And like if I want to post the counter position, you might be like, well, why are you putting it out there? Probably to demonstrate affiliation with a different group, right? And then so, well, <laughs> what's the different group? It's, you know, the John Haidt style uh we need more ideological balance and then you're like on the wrong team and you don't want that. Like, even if you think that it's true, you don't want to like kind of signal explicitly that you're like on that team. Right. Which is a nice, it's nice to be reading this article in particular, I think, because um, Du Bois, if I had to guess, would be down with like Black Lives Matter, you know? Um, And so I think that he's writing from a position where he was like, um, yeah, I mean, Obviously, he wrote a lot about um, advocating against racism. Um, and I think that the context in which he was writing is pretty interesting. So I, I know very little about Du Bois. This is like some of the only only stuff that I've read. I've read other books that talk about him, but I haven't read any of his original writing. Um, but he's writing, um, I think this will become relevant to our discussion, but he's writing around the same time as... Um, for one thing, um, IQ tests are starting to be developed. Um, and he was a critic of IQ tests and the racist implications of IQ tests. Um, and I think that that is really interesting when we consider that along with his arguments about the value free ideal, because the consistency I see in those positions is that, um, he felt that there was some research science that was being done in a biased way in a way that like really disadvantaged black people. Um, and so I'm, I'm like reaching a little bit here. I know that he made these two kinds of arguments, but I think that, um, that he is at least he's coming at this argument for the value free ideal from, I think what we would typically see as a pretty progressive position today or a liberal position. Yeah. Yeah. That struck me as well. So I think that one of the examples that he, uh, wrote about as value-infused science was historians of Reconstruction mm-hmm. who wanted to make it seem like uh, Southern whites during Reconstruction didn't act all that badly for the purposes of, like, national unity or something. Right. right? So <laughs> it's right. kind of it, – it's sort of interesting, right, because, like, right now we're we're sort of assuming that in social science that if there's values infused, they're going to be left-wing values uh-huh. and that – you know, historically definitely has not always been the case. Uh-huh. Um, now, Bright points out that there are occasions where Du Bois also criticized people coming from the left-wing yes. perspective, right? So yeah. he was even-handed in applying this. But but I think like the kind of mainstream of infusing values was infusing values in a conservative direction. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so he talks about like criticizing Booker T. Washington um, for promoting like compromise with white racism, um, and that that would like involve refraining from telling the truth about Jim Crow and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, like, as you say, the, the author is careful to point out that, um, Du Bois was consistent in sort of saying the value free ideal, you know, it cuts both ways. Um, but yeah, some of the examples seem to be, uh, challenging conservative positions with the value free ideal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to me, this illustrates just the importance of having a principle, right? So like in the current moment, we might be tempted to think infusing values is great. Uh-huh. and But, you know, the current moment isn't, it, it's not, uh, we, we can't count on that always being the uh, the situation that we're in, right? And I think it's much safer to have a principle that says, be disinterested or at least strive for it than... Yeah, right. I see the parallels to like, you know, censorship, censorship arguments, right? Um like it's really, really easy to find censorship or, I mean, at least selectivity arguments persuasive when, when you're advocating for censoring the person that you don't want to hear from. I think I think that the left and the right are both very guilty of that. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's, it's just a hundred percent motivated reasoning, and you know it, it's I mean it's tough. It's tough to be principled. Um, the desire to believe that the people on your team are in the right and the people on the other team are dangerous and need to be stopped. I mean, that's just kind of what it means to have a partisan identity, right? And so it just like very naturally follows from that. All right. It's starting to sound too much like you're winning this discussion. So let's talk about some of the arguments against the value-free ideal. Yeah. So what are what are the arguments against the value-free ideal? 
Right. So Bright describes sort of two categories of arguments. So he describes choice-based dissent. Um, and there's like a couple of different flavors of this. Um, but I think that both of these sort of imply that um, when we make claims as scientists, there are values embedded in that process. Um, so, uh, for instance, if we're operating within something like a null hypothesis significance testing framework, so we're deciding whether something has been shown or not, or we're accepting or rejecting hypotheses, um, we need to consider things like thresholds for evidence, right? So um, that involves an evaluation of the costs of type one and type two errors, right? So as as scientists, we can say, okay, there's um, there's the kind of error where we say that something is true when it's in fact not true, or there's the kind of error um, that we can make when we say that something is false when in fact it's actually a real thing. Um, and so like when we decide what our thresholds are for saying, okay, this thing meets our standards of evidence, um, we have to place a value on um, which of those errors, or basically like how bad are both of those kinds of errors. Um, so that's one sort of version. And then and then another version is what um, Bright calls, or, and maybe others as well, called underdetermination arguments. And I think what this is, um, and you can you can correct me if this is off, but I think the idea is that we are never basically like 100% sure that a hypothesis has been supported or that a claim has been supported. Um, so we're all always our like theories or our claims are underdetermined. Um, and so there's some sort of value judgment that comes into deciding, okay, well, this is enough evidence that we can move forward or sort of operate um, as though this is true. Yeah. I, that's, that's how I understood it too. Um, and it, both of these perspectives, just to be clear, they don't just say, well, sometimes scientists due to being human can't but help do these mm -hmm. things. They say scientists should do these things, right? It's proper, for example, um, to have different standards of evidence for facts that you think are going to uh, promote a good outcome versus facts you think are going to promote a bad outcome. So mm -hmm. you, you as a scientist think, hey, if, the, if people start to believe this, this is going to have these bad social effects, then you should have a higher bar for evidence for that claim than if you think if people believe this, it's going to have good social effects. That's my understanding. Right. Like one context in which, or one example I've heard that people use when describing these kinds of decisions is like, imagine that you did a study um, that suggests that like we shouldn't worry about an animal becoming extinct or something like that. Right. Um, and so we should just like, uh, there's no reason for us to be concerned. So like a lot of people would argue that in a case like that, um, we want to be 100% sure, right? That like um, we don't need to worry about harming this animal or this species. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, there are different kinds of conclusions that we could, there are different implications, I guess, of um, of deciding that, that a finding is uh, convincing and sometimes um, we want to be really, really sure. And sometimes maybe it doesn't matter so much if we're really sure. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I've never understood why people get so upset about animals going extinct in particular. <laughs> uh, that's that's funny. <laughs> I've never um, had to defend that position, which is consistent with. See, it's like, yeah. yeah. There, there you go. It's just a, like a truism that that's bad. But, you know, uh, almost every species of animal that's ever existed has gone extinct. It's sort of part of the natural cycle. Do you feel that way about humans going extinct? No, I like humans. I'm partial. But, you know, I, I admit oh, that I that's, yeah, no, it's not necessarily a defensible, disinterested position. It's just I happen to be a human. <laughs> I want us to stick around. <laughs> I think we're nice, you know. Okay. So, yeah, so those are the two choice-based dissents that basically say, you know, it's right that at some stage of the decision-making process that scientists build in um, their their own value judgments, whether that's when deciding what the uh, bar of evidence should be for affirming a hypothesis or uh, which theory ought to be seen as most consistent with the facts. Uh, in either case, it's right uh, for scientists to apply their own values when making those decisions. I think it is important that um, throughout the article, uh, Bright notes that none of the sort of dissenters that he describes um, 
all of them are saying that actually values should be involved in science. Um, so they're not saying like, it's impossible to eliminate values from science. And therefore, that's why we disagree with Du Bois. Um, but I want to come back to that at some point. Yeah, let's let's put a pin in that for, uh-huh. for later. Uh, so the second uh, dissent, which I think we can go over more quickly, um, is uh, efficiency-based dissent. And that basically says when you have a group of scientists that are all advocating for their values as part of the scientific process, you actually make more progress rather than when you have a community of pure uh, truth seekers. I didn't understand from the description why that would be true. I guess I find this argument a little easier to understand. So to me, this argument follows pretty pretty neatly from believing that eliminating values from our reasoning is impossible. So if you think that that's impossible, then maybe it makes sense to accept that those values are floating around and try to balance them out. Um, but I don't think that, so I, Bright mentions Longino as somebody who, who makes this argument. I'm not sure if Longino is coming at it from that perspective. So, um, so I think that she may be saying that actually this is, this is better. And it's not just a consequence of the fact that we can't get rid of our values. It's like our values are useful to some degree. Um, I don't know what the argument for why that is, but doesn't that seem a little bit consistent with sort of like the the argument Du Bois makes in general for the value of democracy. So everybody has their own sort of unique perspective and experience. And if we like compile those, then that ultimately is um, going to lead to the best outcome or the best outcome for the most people or something like that. Like that seems to be something that Du Bois expresses because his interest in disinterested science um, is partly because he thinks that's best in a democracy, right? Yeah, yeah. So I I think that we should get to that um, that argument for uh, value free science. But I I think that's that's a good point. I mean, if you if you think that uh, citizens people can work out between each other uh, what the right thing to do is despite their different values and moral beliefs, then why not say well scientists will engage in a similar process? I I don't know that that takes you to, well, that's superior to the hypothetical value-free disinterested truth seekers. But, you know, maybe, so I just don't know enough about this argument. Maybe it's the case that the argument goes that, well, since you can't eliminate it, uh, you might as well have a diversity of views and have the kind of truth emerge through argument. I guess what struck me here is like, we don't have this situation in the social sciences because we don't have a real diversity of moral and political views. We all kind of agree with each other, right? So it's like, if there's an argument, it's an argument between the people who are like kind of left and the people who are like more left, right? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, not just not just the left and more left, but I mean, like we talked about last episode, um, the psychology is not just undiverse in that it has few conservatives, right? It's undiverse in a vast number of ways. Um, and so I do think that Longino's argument, this this sort of efficiency-based dissent argument against the value-free ideal is contingent upon having a really diverse group of people doing the research. Um, and I think it, I think that Longino would argue for all kinds of diversity. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So, yeah, I think when evaluating this, we do need to be kind of aware of how, yeah, like you said, non-diverse we are as a field, as a rule. Um, So let's, why don't we move to uh, Dubois' arguments Mm -hmm. for the value-free ideal? Um, And so uh, according to Bright, he makes two like kind of general arguments. One is saying uh, that people who are, scientists who are attempting to be value neutral are actually going to do better work. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bright seems pretty skeptical of that argument and says, mm-hmm. basically, like, doesn't really elaborate, but says, yeah, there's a lot of work in philosophy of science that says no. To me, it's not clear why that's kind of evidently wrong. I mean, it does seem like if you're a real partisan axe grinder, it's going to interfere with your ability to do good research. But uh, I mean, did that resonate with you at all? So 
So wait, you think that Bright is is skeptical of the idea that um, if we're trying to seek the truth, we'll do better work? Yeah. So he seemed, well, he seems skeptical of the idea that scientists who try to be value free rather than incorporate values into their work are going to come closer to the truth. He seemed to think yeah. that that was like wrong or at least like highly debatable. I, yeah, I don't know what the argument is for why that that would be wrong. Um, a sort of an analogy that comes to mind is um, when you're trying to be unbiased as a grader or something like that. Um, and so you're trying to be, it depends, I guess, on how you go about um, trying to remove bias, right? So if your attempts to remove bias are like, uh, to catch your biases and counter them or something like that. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're grading, but like, let's say you, um, you know, the person who wrote the paper and you think that they like have some stuff going on in their life or something like that. And so you try to be more lenient or you, um, really like a student who submitted a paper. And so you feel like you might be biased in their favor. And so you try to compete against that and like counteract it. Um, I think we're pretty bad at doing that kind of thing. So if someone were to argue, like, I think scientists are better when they, you know, really monitor their own biases and try to like catch them and compensate for them, I would be pretty skeptical. It's not like I think that they would do worse work. Um, It doesn't sound like an ideal solution to me. But I do think that there are um, ways of tying your own hands that are very useful, right? So for instance, like, I think that pre-registration is a great way to prevent like bias from um, from interfering with your own interpretation of your data. Uh, and that is like a procedural way of removing your own subjective judgment from um, doing your analyses that I think is really important. I, I agree. Um, I, I think it's not really clear to me why it should be so obvious that biased researchers don't do worse work. But I think we can also put that aside because I think that uh, Dubois's other argument is kind of, kind of the more um, interesting one to talk about. Mm-hmm. So um, the the way that Bright describes it, uh, Dubois talks about immediate and immediate aims in science. I didn't know that terminology. I was mm-hmm. thinking of it like as the ultimate versus the like kind of proximal. Goal. Yeah, right. I was like hoping that we could use like means and ends or yes, like final some, and right. Because like immediate and immediate are constantly. It's just terrible. It's this terrible philosophy terminology. But anyway, so yeah, that the the ultimate end of science is supposed to be to give policymakers good advice. Like or even more broadly to say, like as a society, we need facts in order mm-hmm. to make good decisions, and it's science's job to provide those those right. facts. Right. And and then the um, immediate or the kind of like proximal goal of scientists are supposed to be, uh, Dubois says, just to try to find out what's true, right? Mm-hmm. To like leave our values out of it and just seek the truth. And so his argument is, I, th- I think, is two parts. First, if we give policymakers distorted advice, it makes them make worse decisions. But also, if we're perceived to be biased, then policymakers will just ignore us or maybe the public you know, that part of the public that doesn't agree with us, that isn't on our team, is just going to ignore us. And that's really bad if we're if our goal in the end is to give society facts that that people can use in order to make better decisions. So how did that strike you as an argument? Um, I thought that was interesting. So, yeah, so I think that the, the idea is that um, that we will lose credibility in the eyes of the public um, if we acknowledge that we have motives beyond seeking the truth. Um, and if we lose the, the trust of the public, um, then we can't, uh, we can't act as the fact providers for the policymakers or something like that. Um, so I, I guess like part of that argument, um, strikes me as, or the structure of that argument strikes me as plausible. I wasn't totally convinced that the public would, reject scientists or find them less credible um, necessarily if scientists acknowledged having motives beyond seeking the truth. Um, I think that that is usually the way that we market science to the public. Um, So I think that uh, 
in <laughs> I think that if we all of a sudden told the public like actually scientists do have biases and they're going to influence their work mm, I don't have a good sense of what proportion of the public would be like, yeah, duh. And what proportion would be like, whoa, 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 that's not what we signed on for. Like, that's not what scientists are supposed to be doing. Um, but I guess like, so, so my biggest issue with the value free ideal is that I don't think it's possible. And, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about like the feasibility later on and what the implications of that are. Um, but I guess my ideal situation is that we, communicate that to the public and we say like even though um scientists are not capable of achieving the value-free ideal um that doesn't mean that we can't like strive for um the the best answers that or the best facts that we can come up with and there are these maybe these safeguards or these approaches um that might support that one of which being a diversity of views so i'm pretty sympathetic to the longino's efficiency-based um dissent argument um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it would be possible to, uh, maintain the public's trust while acknowledging, um, that scientists are biased. And in fact, I think any other approach to gaining public trust is disingenuous because we know that scientists are biased. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there's something to be said for like just owning up to the fact that like nobody's going to be unbiased, right. As a practical, right. um, <laughs> as a practical fact, but I mean, if we say, yeah, we're biased, yes, our biases affect our work, oh, and we all play for the same political team, then people who are not on that team or who are on the opposing team, shouldn't they? I mean, isn't it rational then for them to say like, okay, I'm not going to listen to you? Like, why should they listen? Like, if you do the thought experiment of like, you're a liberal and it turns out that there's this body of research that's done, you know, by conservatives uh, almost everybody who does it is a conservative. And, oh, by the way, it tends to come up with a bunch of conclusions that conservatives like. Wouldn't you then just write off that body of work and say like, well, we, we I can't use that in my decision making. That's too tainted by the politics of the people who are putting this out. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to our discussion from last time, too. But I think the only real way you can defend um, a field that is dominated by one political position, which is obviously true of psychology and social psych in particular, um, is to say that somehow that political position is correlated with doing better work. Now, I don't know if people are making that argument, um, but uh, at least like within the sort of efficiency-based dissent argument, this idea that in order to arrive at um, at whatever the, the closest thing that we can think of to truth, or, or maybe you want to just say truth, um, is to have these people with differing perspectives who, um, were like compiling all of their views. Uh, I think it's hard to argue for that. Um, if you are also arguing for excluding, um, one broad perspective, I, I guess maybe, yeah, maybe people would be, would argue that, um, there is something uh there are something some things that we should exclude for moral reasons uh so like what do you have in mind there yeah good question um i mean i guess the first things that come to mind are like the iq research where you know people like philip rushton were arguing that one racial group is better than another and smarter and things like that um i i will say that like my first reaction to that is that on the face of it, that that shouldn't be published. Um, and my critique, I know many people have critiqued Rushton methodologically and things like that, but um, yeah, I mean, I think those are the kinds of, at least like on an intuitive level, those are the kinds of things where um, it starts to feel like values play an important role um, in in what we do, or they should they should be involved. Man, that's a that's a great example, though, right? Because like, so racial group differences on IQ tests, like mean differences, are just an observed fact. That that yeah. is true, right? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. so the argument is then about the explanation, right? And and where yeah. Rushton and uh, his ilk, you know, come up with some really unsavory stuff is to say, well, it's genetic, right? So like, black people score worse because they're genetically dumber. That's like mm -hmm. obviously offensive, right? But I I think. 
you know, according to Duwaz's thinking, like that that should be a valid hypothesis, right? That should be something that we can explore, that we can test, that we can publish data on. Um, people can take the pro and con sides of that. And that just doesn't seem to be the case, right? Like, unless you're just a prepare to join the camp of like the hardcore racists, like you just don't want to touch genetic bases of differences in IQ. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like a terrible fear for people to have to me. I'm not like, oh no, these poor people are afraid of publishing their work on genetic, you know, differences in intelligence. Like they're being, you know, their views are being suppressed. But I do, I mean, also people have looked at um, racial differences in scores on things like the GRE and have um, argued that, you know, this means that we should reconsider how we select students for graduate programs and things like that. So I know that you can use those data um, to argue for a lot of different positions. Um, and maybe that's consistent with Du Bois' argument that the data should be out there and then other people should be interpreting them somehow. Another another question I have about that, which I think maybe this is too much of a tangent, but um, then when you're like applying these data to policies, like don't you have the same kinds of challenges when it comes to values? Like if values are coming in at that point, um, then then what do we save by removing them earlier? Like why do we trust politicians to be infusing values in their work and not scientists or something? But maybe that's too much of a tangent. No, I don't think it is. I mean, I that's what kind of struck me about Du Bois's argument, as I understand it, is that it has a lot of faith in democracy to come up with the right answers, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea is you put the facts in front of the people, they'll decide or they'll elect people to make the decisions for them. And that will lead to better outcomes, right? Giving people more information will lead to better outcomes because you trust them to use that information wisely. So if so-and-so publishes a paper saying uh, these racial groups do worse on a Q test because they're genetically inferior, you put it out there and you trust the public to use that information wisely, right? To hopefully <laughs> discount it. Um, I do think, you know, here's, here's a case maybe that you can make for just sort of the pragmatic benefits of having this value-free ideal is okay, we're, we're going to all say we find this idea that like some racial groups are genetically stupid or to be offensive or we're going to ban it. But then there's this creep outwards from that to other related concepts, right? And so now people start saying standardized tests are racist because they show differences between racial groups and scores, right? So average scores for racial groups differ on those standardized tests. And then you say, okay, well, the logical consequence of that is we should get rid of those standardized tests in, for example, undergraduate admissions. But then the problem is, does that make the situation better? And I think there's strong arguments that other things that you would base your admissions decisions on are even more tainted by the socioeconomic advantages that uh, majority group members on average enjoy, right? So the SAT is, is, for example, like the least biased measure that you could use. If you look at, I don't know, extracurriculars or number of advanced placement classes or recommendations from counselors, that stuff is even more affected by these biases. And so you end up in a bad place where you're actually throwing out the measure that has the least amount of bias in it. And that I think is to me, a pretty strong argument for saying, like, when you start deciding, you know, this stuff is accept acceptable, this stuff isn't because of my distaste for the conclusions or my fear of the consequences, it's pretty easy to end up in a place where that actually backfires and that those moral standards that you've set then lead people to actually make worse decisions. Yeah, I I see the, like, creep argument um, and the sort of general idea that there has to be some kind of principle that's independent from the implications of the results. Um, but it still like, isn't totally satisfying to me to say like, okay, let's just publish Rushton's article and let the people decide. So, so first of all, not everything gets published. Um, so there's a selectivity and, um, I guess the argument would be, okay, it's being, it should be selected for based on quality of the research, you know? Um, but, 
Yeah. I mean, there's something that's like really unsatisfying about Rushton getting, you know, rewarded for this work. But also at the same time, the idea that the the public can sort of like make what it will of these data is totally naive. And we all know that. So like, I can't even, you know, make sense of an article that's, you know, I don't know, written by like a cognitive neuroscientist or something like that. Right. So we can't expect the public to be um, making sense of these like raw data that we're publishing. Um, so the interpretations matter and the interpretations. So my biggest, my biggest issue with a value free ideal is that it seems like um, if we if we suggest that that actually is guiding people's research and, and scientists are capable of attaining the value-free ideal, then scientists uh, get treated as having all of this extra credibility, which I think is unwarranted because I think the value-free ideal is not achievable. And so I think that that is a very accurate description of the situation that we're in right now where science... And this, this is like the same issue as the IQ testing in the early 20th century, right? It's like because scientists are claiming that the value-free ideal is achieved in their work, they get all this extra credibility, but it's not. So their their own biases and goals are influencing how they collect the data, the questions that they ask, the way that they analyze them, the way that they interpret them. This is always going to be the case. Um, but that scientists get this badge of objectivity, which then means that the public um, trusts them more than they deserve. So that's, I don't know, that's my complaint. <laughs> So basically, if I understand your argument right, it's that policymakers and the public ought actually to be ignoring us. Uh, I think that that they should be trusting us less. So that we are currently overrated among members of the public. Yeah, I think that's true. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. If you'd rather email, our show email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. We really appreciate hearing from our listeners and uh, we've been enjoying the emails you guys have been sending. Our website is fourbeers.com. Uh, you can listen to any of our episodes there. Drop us a line there as well if you'd like. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, please just take a minute to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, we like it and it helps other people discover the show. We are sponsored again this week by Finding Five. Uh, Finding Five is a web platform where academic researchers can create and run line, uh, run online behavioral research studies. Their website is www.findingfive.com. Uh, Finding Five is best suited for uh, stimulus presentation type studies is what they call it. Uh, those are studies that... Uh, where you might want to show, let's say, hundreds of randomized stimuli to participants. So like many, many trials. Uh, those could be like cognitive psych studies, but also social cognition studies. So the IT, for example, uh, is like that. Uh, so Finding Five makes it really quick and easy uh, to run those sorts of studies. One thing I'll say is that when I tried playing around with the platform, I found it pretty easy to use. So I haven't like coded a complicated study um, in quite a long time, over 10 years. Um, so it seemed pretty easy to create like a, a study that would um, do the kind of complicated stimulus presentation um, arrangements or uh, reaction time stuff that you would require if you're doing sort of like social cognition types of research. Um, so 
yeah, it seems it seems like it wouldn't be too hard to pick up. Um, and also they provide a way of getting um, uh, recruiting participants as well. Um, so you have that sort of integrated within the system. Yeah. Alexa, would you, is it fair to say that you are not a tech enthusiast? <laughs> uh, I think that is fair. Uh, <laughs> although I'm also a, like anti um, non-tech enthusiast. So I try to, I try to play both sides. I see. I see. You, you affiliate with no team. Well, I guess I support that. Uh, yeah. So like Alexa mentioned, uh, you uh, can log in, you can create studies for free. If you want to start collecting data, uh, they will charge you a reasonable per participant cost. Uh, they are uh, a nonprofit, so they're really just trying to pay the bills, uh, not make money. Um, if you're interested, uh, what we recommend that you do is that you go to the website, so that's finding5.com, play around with it, maybe make some studies. At the point that you're ready to collect data, uh, you can redeem a promo code for a free one-month pro subscription uh, that comes with 100 free participants uh, for that monthly cycle. Uh, those promo codes will be uh, on our website and in the show notes. Uh, they are a little long and complicated to say. So yeah, uh, we thank Finding Five for sponsoring us. And now back to our show. What are you drinking? Is it more sparkling yeah, lime thing? Still sparkling lime thing. Excellent. I'm I'm finishing this wine. It's, uh, you know, here's the problem is I shouldn't drink every night, but when the wine is so good and so cheap, how am I not going to drink every night? Yeah. Yeah. I would find that hard also. Yeah. Also, I'm on my own. To be honest, I don't have much else to do. <laughs> I'm just going to come out of here with a drinking problem. That's my plan. I was going to say, that sounds like the the makings for a healthy drinking habit, you know, drinking <laughs> every night by yourself. Basically, what I've been doing is I've been stuffing myself with cheese and sausage, <laughs> and then I've been drinking alone every night. <laughs> healthy living. What I don't understand is like, okay, so the Spanish are not into health food. It's all like meat, potatoes. If there's a vegetable, it's deep fried. And yet they're not all like incredibly fat. So I don't understand how that works. I don't understand that either. Um, yeah, I've often wondered that about, I feel like people say the same about the French, you know? It's like, yeah. I need so many croissants and then... Yeah, you're, croissants you know. and like, you know, pate. And yet they're not grossly <laughs> obese. <laughs> I don't get it, man. Okay, so um, before the break, so we you had touched on something that I thought was like really kind of revealing that jumped out at me too, which is that um, Du Bois's argument really puts a lot of faith in in people and politicians to do the right thing, right? The, the idea is, you know, we put the facts out there as scientists, we inform the public. They deliberate, they make the right decisions. That's sort of the model of how this is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And that, like, to me, really flies in the face of the way that I would say we, people like us, kind of talk about the public. So I'm going to say, like, you know, elites and do a little air quotation mark around that. But, like, you know, <laughs> the, I don't the, associate with this. Yes, no, you do not at all. Um, <laughs> And I, I think that's, you know, you're, you're not an elite. You're drinking Bud Light, <laughs> but what, Bud Lime without the beer in it? I'm like Bud Light light. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. Can I make this Bud Light any lighter? But, you know, in general, um, people who are educated, people who are in positions of cultural influence, I feel like have a default stance now of saying we don't trust the public, right? We're super worried about misinformation. We're super worried about the spread of fake news on social media. People are talking about how do we restrict people from getting exposed to this bad information. The idea being it's going to poison them, right? Like they see stuff about uh, COVID isn't real or vaccines are dangerous or you should take ivermectin and then they do bad stuff and it has bad outcomes, right? So how do we restrict this information that's going to give them the people these bad wrong ideas. And I wonder, do you have that same sense? And if so, you know, does, does that mean we we just have to, if we really believe that, then this argument doesn't, that do, Du Bois is making just doesn't work, right? 
Well, I don't think that Du Bois's argument is that inconsistent with what you were just describing. So I think what Du Bois would say is like, you can't trust the public when you're giving the public bad information, right? So like garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so I think Du Bois would say that, you know, scientists have to get rid of the misinformation and make sure that, you know, the data that's getting to the public is um, trustworthy before we can trust the public to do the right thing with it. I still share your skepticism about whether the right thing, whatever that means, would get done in that case. So, I mean, this like at, at an abstract level, this idea sounds kind of nice. So we just like have a bunch of unbiased data that's being put out there. And then, you know, the the, the experts perhaps or the um, publicly elected officials, um, maybe sometimes the public themselves are looking at that data and deciding what to do with it. Um, but But I would say that a lot of that interpretation is something that actually s scientists are trained to do and most people are not. Um, so I don't know exactly what the public is being presented with in this sort of, um, in like, let's say Du Bois's utopian scenario. Um, but taking data and like deciding how to do statistical tests on it and then deciding what conclusions to draw from those statistical tests um, and then deciding how you would apply those conclusions to like slightly different scenarios or maybe even vastly different scenarios. Those are all things that we probably get inadequate training in as scientists. But if you don't have any training in them at all, they, they're like next to impossible. I mean, they're, they are next to impossible for scientists, too. So I'm not like that second step, the I guess what um, Du Bois calls the immediate um, goal or whatever the, you know, the final outcome, right? The policy implications um, of science. The decisions at that point um, don't seem to be, they seem to be like really challenging decisions that actually rely quite a bit on um, skills that are part of scientific training. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe divorce would say, well, it's part of the responsibility of the scientists to communicate the findings to the public in a way that's, you know, even handed, um, that is untainted by their their own political or or moral beliefs and or or maybe mm -hmm. just I mean it doesn't touch on this but like they are you know kind of just self interest of like making your own research sound more important right mm -hmm. um, but but that anyway that ought to be our ideal is that we're going to try and communicate our findings to people in a way that's you know fair even handed and useful to them yeah I mean it just it just starts to sound like there are values involved in that process, you know, like what does useful mean? And like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just keep going back to the fact that, or it, it just keeps seeming to me like it's impossible to do all of these things without values being involved. So I, I think we're getting to like, how feasible is this? Right. Mm -hmm. And as bright, writes, it's, it's not the case that saying, well, you know, you can't get this perfectly right is really an argument against it, right? So he has a nice sentence um, that the ideal will never be perfectly met is, after all, an argument that vice can make against all virtue. And this is hardly considered the end of ethics. Yeah, I was annoyed by this because the whole time I was reading the paper, I was like, well, the problem is that this is not realistic. Um, and then basically Bright was like, well, anybody who argues that this is not realistic is like kind of boring and stupid. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> but I don't think it's boring and stupid. Right. right. I mean, I think it's fair to say, like, if what you want is just impossible, right, if it's impossible to even approach it then advocating for it as a policy doesn't make any sense. I, I think there's that version of the argument. So so one, one criticism that you might arrive at if you decide that the value-free ideal is impossible is that, um, yeah, that it doesn't make sense to advocate for something that's impossible. I think what Bright is saying, and maybe Du Bois would have said this as well, is like, don't let the um, perfect be the enemy of the good, right? So like, um, even if we can't do this perfectly, we should still try to strive to do the best job we can. Um, but in this case, I think that um, maybe there's a version of striving to do this while acknowledging that we're falling short that I could get behind. Um, but my my issue comes with um, 
if we're claiming that this is possible or we're claiming that this is like approximately what scientists are doing, then I think that misrepresents science. So I think that there is actually a, a cost of falling short of that ideal if we're not being really clear about how we're falling short of it, which is, again, this sort of like added credibility um, that we're giving to scientists when when this value-free ideal is not really being met. Yeah. So it, to me, okay, I, I, I think that you're you're totally right about this, this idea of like unwarranted credibility. And we shouldn't claim that we're doing something we're not. We certainly shouldn't claim that we're doing this thing that everybody agrees it's impossible to do 100%, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I do think that the idea that like we're entirely going to leave our, leave our values out of the science that we do is just – it's not human, um, and mm-hmm. we can we can aspire to that, but we ought to know that, and and tell people honestly that that's not possible. Mm-hmm. But I I do think that there's kind of a difference in orientation, um, and so I I don't know if this connection is is fair, but I I think that the U.S. public health establishment was rightly criticized during COVID for communicating things to the public based on their belief about how that information would affect the public's behavior mm-hmm. rather than what they really thought. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, when they were worried that people would go and buy surgical masks or N95s and hoard them, that was mm-hmm. part of the reason they said you don't need masks. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a world of difference between saying, well, we're not always going to get it right. And, you know, sometimes our biases may affect what we say and saying, well, we're explicitly going to have as a goal in our like kind of factual communications of influencing public opinion in one way or another. I think that like it really did. I mean, I don't want to make too much out of this because there's it was so, you know, multi-causal mm-hmm. why Americans in particular Many of them didn't trust public health authorities. But I don't think you can neglect that. If people come out and say, hey, we told you this because we were trying to manipulate you, Mm -hmm. like, isn't it rational to then say, well, I'm going to ignore you, Mm -hmm. right? So I I, I do think that that, that it's a distinction that I do think is important. Like, what are we aspiring to do, even if we don't always live up to it? Yeah, right. Like, there's there's a version of... um rejecting the value-free ideal and maybe it is more rejecting claiming the value-free ideal where we say something to the public that's like listen none of these scientists are objective nobody's keeping their values out of their work um but uh yeah i mean but we're still going to like try to um try to get as close to the truth as possible in these various ways um and we're trying to be like as transparent as possible about that. Like there's a, a version of that that sounds pretty good to me. Um, I I agree with you that when you start saying like, we're going to be selective about what we tell you in your own best interest, that that starts to feel both condescending and also unsustainable. I would yeah. no longer trust somebody who told me that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I remember I saw a talk by a public health person that was like about inaccurate risk perceptions. And one thing that I noticed is like everybody overperceived the risk of, I forget what it was, getting some sort of cancer or something. Um, and I was like, isn't it a problem? Like I asked the speaker, isn't it a problem that everybody's overestimating the risks? Like, shouldn't you be worried about that? And they were like, no, 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 that's fine. We want them to do this like health preventative stuff. So it's fine Mm -hmm. for them to think. Yeah. I I was like, who the fuck do you think you are? Right. Mm -hmm. Like I really, I was offended by that. I -hmm. I think it's so paternalistic to say like, well, we're basically going to mislead you because we think it'll be better for you to believe Mm -hmm. the wrong stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. that's where like, for me, Du Bois's argument really resonates is like, Mm -hmm. I do think you lose people when they start to feel that that's your attitude. We're just going to tell you what we think is good for you. I will say that I like that the weather network gives me slightly pessimistic forecasts. So then I'm really (laughs) delighted when it's really sunny out. Do do they own up to it? Are they like, we're trying to manipulate you? I've I've heard that somewhere, but I don't think I heard it from the Weather Network. So yeah, I mean, so actually, those are a great great example. Uh-huh. Right. Um, there, there's asymmetric costs to being wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's worse to not have your umbrella and need it than to bring it and not need it. Yeah. 
hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, maybe we could have a situation where we're transparent about lying to people, you know, like how people will set their own clocks like five minutes fast so they're not late for things. And somehow that might work for some people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely in the weather case, I, I would, I would rather have the weather service that's a little bit pessimistic than the mm-hmm. one that strives for accuracy. Yeah. Yep. yep. So I, one thing I wanted to ask you about, there's a thing in your show notes here about implications for P-values. Can you okay. explain to me what what is that? Okay, so at some point um, in the article, Bright talks about how um, how he thinks. So one thing that Du Bois doesn't talk a lot about is um, when a claim would be justified, right? Um, and this ties in with some of the dissents because um, the dissents say, okay, values seep into that process, right? Um, but Bright speculates that Du Bois would want a really clear cutoff. Um, so he would want people to be deciding, okay, this is true or not, or this is, you know, um, this hypothesis is supported or it isn't based on some sort of like objective cutoff, um, that can't be influenced by people's values. Um, and it just reminded me of the debate, um, about whether P value should be one universal cutoff or whether you should justify your P values, right. Which is a position that Lockins and others have advocated for, right. Um, and it's so it sounds like from Bright's analysis that he thinks that um, Du Bois re- would reject the justify your alpha um, approach uh, because in justifying your alpha, you would be saying like your your values would come into that process. Right. So you'd be making exactly these kinds of evaluations like this kind of error is worse than this kind of error. So I'm going to set my P value like this um, and that that's going to have implications for the claims I'm going to make. Yeah, I I think that I'm team hypothetical Du Bois on this. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to so justify like, your p values. I, You're just being lazy. I, I just I just want a default that I can stick with. Come on, <laughs> you know. So uh, I have not seen this actually gain traction. Like I haven't seen justify your alpha in you know a published paper. I haven't gotten it in a paper that I reviewed or edited. Have you? Um, I've seen people talking about this idea, but more within the like methods circles. So I don't think that it's come up much for me in like reviewing or handling empirical articles. Um, but very anecdotal. Yeah, right. Right. So obviously this is limited to like the stuff that I've read or the stuff that I've run across in the review process. But yeah, I mean, in proportion to the the amount of argument that there's been about this in method circles like the amount of actual use of it seems to be like vanishingly small like all, all the justify your alpha stuff that i hear about is people arguing about justify your alpha not like people actually justifying their alpha uh-huh yeah um yeah i think that people probably this is just speculation um unless they're going to to adjust their alpha in a more conservative direction, I think people probably worry that it's not p- popular enough at this point that you could say like, oh, I'm justifying my alphas uh, P of 0.2. And then, you know, an editor will be like, cool, you know, as opposed to being like, what are you trying to get away with? Right. <laughs> and to be honest, that would be my reaction, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? No. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> 